we are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classco Immigration Law Partners. Hello, everybody. This is Ron Clasco, and I'm very happy to be uh, heading up the third part of our three-episode podcast dealing with problems with EB-5 projects and regional centers. Uh, I'm joined today by two of our terrific members of the EB-5 team, uh, Dan Lundy and Jessica Denisi. For those of you who have not yet had a chance to check out the first two episodes, I, I would strongly recommend it. The first episode dealt with troubles involving uh, problems with EB-5 projects uh, and how we resolve those problems for our clients. And the second ep- episode dealt with problems with that regional centers have uh, and how we uh, advise our regional center clients in resolving those problems. The third part, today's episode, involves, well, what happens when we can't resolve those problems? And the answer is that we have to go to federal court to get a federal court to intervene in dealing with the issue. And the good news is uh, that we have done that on a large number of occasions um, and with a very, very high success rate. We're going to be talking about two different uh, types of litigation today. Uh, Jessica is going to start talking about how we deal with the problem of delays. And unfortunately, as anybody listening to this podcast probably knows, there are often significant delays in the EB-5 process. And there is a court procedure that Jessica will discuss for how we can get action on delayed cases. And as I said, this is something we do uh, very frequently. The second type of litigation is litigation to deal with denials uh, and trying to get a federal court to overturn those denials. And as we discuss all of this, and Dan and I will both be discussing uh, different types of cases, uh, as we discuss all of this, it's important to understand that one of the advantages of federal court litigation is that federal court judges really are not that interested in what the USCIS policy on a subject is or what the latest policy memo or policy manual might say. When you get into federal court, they're dealing not with policy, but with the law. And the law is the statute and the regulations, and if there are any precedent decisions. And when the immigration service tries to defend by saying, well, that's not our policy, generally a federal court judge is going to go with the law and not with USCIS policy. So with all of that as an introduction, Jess, why don't you start us off? Uh, We have uh, clients with delayed 526s, delayed 829s, delayed 924s. Um, Other than uh, saying, you know, too bad, so sad, uh, what action can we offer to our clients to to, uh, force the government to move forward? Well, so the answer to a petition that is well outside of normal processing times is to file a mandamus. A mandamus is filed in order to uh, compel a government agency to carry out a particular duty. So in this case, uh, to compel USCIS to adjudicate a petition that's that's been pending for too long. 
As you just mentioned, USCIS processing times have increased dramatically. Um, you know, what used to take months uh, a number of years ago, um, you know, now takes years and years, and, you know, sometimes 10 years. Um, current processing times for an I-526 petition right now are listed at between 35 and 70 months. And for an A29 petition, between 35 and 55 months. Um, so a mandamus would be filed in order to um, have USCIS actually look at the petitions. Um, I, I do think it's important to note, though, that while a mandamus will cause USCIS to adjudicate a petition, it won't necessarily cause USCIS to approve a petition. Um, so, uh, you know, you might still have to deal with an RFE or an OID or even a denial. So some issues that we, we often get as questions from our clients is, well, if I do this, uh, will the immigration service not like me uh, and therefore deny my case? And I can tell you we've done uh, hundreds of these and I see no evidence of that whatsoever. Uh, a case that's likely to be approved will be approved quicker. Uh, a case that's likely to get an RFE will get an RFE quicker. Uh, but uh, we're not likely to get a different result. We're just likely to get that result uh, quicker. And the second question we get all the time is, how long is this all going to take? We have been filing mandamus cases in large volumes for many years. And I would say at least 90% of them that we have filed, we have gotten a, an adjudication of the petition within, I would say, two to five months. Uh, and the reason is simple. The, the government attorneys don't want to spend their, their time defending why it is that their client, the USCIS, can't get around to looking at a petition for two or three years. Um, and they usually prevail on their client to issue an adjudication. Recently, we have started seeing a greater number of cases where the government will defend and will file a motion to dismiss trying to get the court not to grant the mandamus. Um, we have seen that almost never in cases that have been pending at least two years. If a case has been pending closer to a year, we're more likely to see uh, some delays in the process while we fight a government motion to dismiss. Dan, anything you want to add on mandamus? Um, yeah, I want to add the point that a mandamus action, it's important to remember that a mandamus action is to compel a decision, not an approval. Um, so we're, what we're asking for is actually just to for USCIS to decide the case. You'll get the same result you would have gotten uh, without a mandamus. You'll just hopefully get it sooner. The, um, the remaining types of cases we're going to discuss are what's called declaratory judgment cases. And declaratory judgment cases are uh, where we have a decision, and that decision is a denial, and we're trying to get the court to reverse the denial and, and get approval of the petition. Uh, and we see this, there's a number of areas where we think the USCIS decision-making uh, is not correct and where we've challenged in federal court. Uh, the one that uh, has perhaps achieved the most publicity in recent times uh, is a challenge to the USCIS position on what constitutes an at-risk investment and what constitutes a, a, quote, guaranteed redemption under matter of Azumi. 
In that case, we actually had a decision from the higher court, the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, which is the highest court that exists other than the U.S. Supreme Court, which made its first ruling on on this subject uh, in a case that we handled uh, and ruled that the government's denial of a, a petition based on it not being at risk was in error. Uh, So a number of the federal court litigations uh, have involved what's called put options and call options. And basically what this means is uh, everybody who makes investments hopes to be able to someday get the money back. And the Immigration Service uh, has had a history of saying that no investor can go into an investment with any plans to get his or her money back, which we think is wrong and which we challenge. Uh, The options to get the money back uh, when they exist in the documents are of two types. One type is what's called a call option or a sellback option, where the project has the option to buy out the investor if the project wants to. Um, and there have been many cases that have in federal court where those uh, uh, call options were denied and where the federal court uh, overturned them and said the call option is not a violation of at risk. Up until our case, there had never been a case um, that challenged a put option. And a put option is where the investor has the right to request his money back but only if a certain contingency occurs. So in our case, the investor had a right to get his money back or to request his money back, but only if the project had available cash at that time to pay him back. Uh, And the Immigration Service said, that's no good. We went to federal court and the federal court agreed that because there was no certainty, no guarantee that the investor would ever be able to get his money back because there was no certainty if many years from now, the project would have available cash to pay him, uh, that that was still at risk, and therefore the denial was overturned. There are also at-risk issues involving the period of time during which the money must remain at risk, uh, and uh, there have been challenges where uh, the Immigration Service requires the money to be at risk beyond the two-year conditional residence period. Um, And this is an area that I think is ripe for future litigation because the Immigration Service has been uh, aggressive in trying to expand what constitutes at risk. So let's move on. Dan, uh, uh, some litigation that we've been involved in recently, um, actually multiple cases that we have pending in federal court. Uh, have been involved with the concept of redeployment. Um, And so would you uh, explain that and what our litigation is challenging? So, yeah, let let me give a background on redeployment. So redeployment, uh, USCIS requires that the money remain invested at risk until the end of the two-year conditional residence period. Now, that sounds like a relatively short period of time, uh, but because of visa backlogs, long processing times, the uh, investment window for an EB-5 investor from, you know, especially places like China, where there's a, a long wait for a visa, has gone from a couple of years to 
potentially a decade or more, you know, 15 years, maybe even 18 years. And the money that is invested and put into the original project, well, the original project is often completed and ready to pay the money back to the, to the NCE. Once the money comes back to the NCE, well, USCIS says it has to be at risk. And USCIS doesn't consider the money sitting in a bank account at, at the NCE to be at risk. So the result is that USCIS requires the money be redeployed into a new commercial activity so that the money remains both invested and at risk throughout the conditional residence period. Now, there may even be multiple redeployments, depending on how long the redeployment is and how long uh, the visa wait is and how long your money is outstanding. Um, so, you know, this is this this is a creation of USCIS policy and long visa backlogs, and it's become a challenge for regional centers, new commercial enterprises to find redeployment vehicles that are both, you know, reasonably prudent investments financially and immigration compliant. For years and years, USCIS didn't give us any guidance at all as to what requirements a redeployment had to satisfy. That is until uh, July 24th of last year when USCIS came out with amendments to the policy manual requiring that the redeployment be in a commercial activity uh, within the geographic territory of a regional center within the same regional center and within the same NCE. Fortunately, they clarified that the, that once the jobs are created, the redeployment doesn't have to be into another job creating activity. Similarly, once the jobs are created by the original investment, the redeployment doesn't have to go into a TEA. The redeployment needs to occur within a reasonable time, which USCIS has defined as one year. So the good news is they have clarified the, the reasonable time to be a year, and they've clarified that the redeployment doesn't need to be in a TEA and doesn't need to create more jobs. The problem is, for all those years that people were asking for guidance and USCIS didn't give any, many people redeployed their money outside of the territory of their original regional center. USCIS, of course, has taken the position that this new policy applies retroactively because it's not, in fact, a change. It's just a clarification. Well, that's not true. I mean, that's just ridiculous. The, the, the impact is that, you know, tens of thousands of investors may, you know, now who were eligible for green cards, who've had their 526s pending for a long time or had their 526s approved but have not gotten into the country yet on a green card, now face the possible denial or revocation of their petitions based on a policy that didn't exist when they filed. Uh, because of this, we've now filed two separate lawsuits challenging this issue on the basis that, one, it's uh, it's arbitrary and capricious. They didn't follow the appropriate notice and comment procedures of the Administrative Procedures Act. The policy is promulgated at a time when the USCIS director and the Department of uh, the Acting Secretary of Homeland Security had not been validly appointed. So it may not even be a valid agency action. So we've challenged it on these grounds, and we've also challenged the retroactive imposition of this policy to petitions that predate it by, in some cases, years, many years. Uh, we believe that we have a very strong case, and we believe this will be overturned because this clearly is a substantive rule. It's clearly being applied retroactively, and it clearly was applied, uh, was promulgated without notice or warning to the public. Dan, I'd, I'd like to... Um 
uh, add on some some thoughts on a couple of the points you raised. Uh, so in all of these declaratory judgment cases, we're challenging the government decision or the government policy as being contrary to law. Um, but two of the points you raised in our redeployment litigation uh, are, are issues that we deal with in a lot of our other litigations. Um, one is you talked about uh, notice and comment rulemaking. So just for the, uh, the folks listening, um, what Dan is referring to is uh, if a government by a policy memo or by an addition to the policy manual actually tries to change the law. So if it goes, it's one thing if it's interpreting the statute or the regulation, which it can do by policy. But if it tries to create new law that goes, that's either different from or goes way beyond anything in the statute or regulations, then it's what's called a legislative rule and not an interpretive rule. And if it's a legislative rule, the government can't do it by policy memo and has to publish a notice in the Federal Register and the public has a chance to comment before it can become a final regulation. So we have challenged that not only in the redeployment cases, but in many other cases we handle where the government tries to, in effect, legislate or regulate by policy memo. The other interesting thing, Dan, that you mentioned in the uh, in the redeployment litigation is also something that's uh, 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 arising in other litigations. And that is under the Trump administration, uh, both Secretary of, of Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, and the acting director of the Immigration Service, Kenneth Cuccinelli, uh, were not properly appointed. They're under something called the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, there are specific procedures that a president must go through in order to properly appoint uh, someone to a position that requires Senate confirmation. And for various reasons, President Trump chose not to do that with Wolfer Cuccinelli. Uh, and we have been successful. There's uh, quite a number of cases um, that where the federal courts have overturned uh, attempts by the Immigration Service to promulgate regulations that have to be signed off on by the Secretary of DHS. There's also uh, at least one case that have overturned a USCIS policy that had to be signed off on by the director of USCIS. Uh, and those, uh, depending on the case, uh, we are also including in our complaints uh, allegations that the actions taken uh, required the approval of one of those officials who was not properly appointed. So I think in conclusion, I would say that litigation is really a very important part of our arsenal in representing investors and projects and regional centers, uh, not by any means in most cases. But in cases where, through all other attempts, we've been unable to get action or where there's a decision that we think is wrong. Uh, as we do this podcast, I might mention that there is pending EB-5 legislation that would strip the federal courts of jurisdiction unless there's been an appeal to the Administrative Appeals Office 
And I can tell you that our office is actively involved in opposing those efforts to uh, to restrict judicial review, uh, because uh, hopefully, as you've seen through this discussion today, judicial review is very, very important in providing representation for EB-5 clients. So that concludes the third part of our three-part series uh, dealing with problems that uh, EB-5 projects have and problems that uh, regional centers have. Uh, we hope you've uh, you've enjoyed the three-part series. Please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps people find us. Uh, email us at the podcast at classicallaw.com with any questions you'd like answered. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and WeChat. And sign up for our emails for the latest alerts and blogs at classicallaw.com. This is Ron Clasco. I'd like to thank again Dan Lundy and Jessica Denisi uh, for their time and expertise on all three of these episodes. And thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit us at classicallaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed.